So Dave, um, in between uh, our recording of the last episode and this episode, I received in the mail from Fernwood Publishers, an excellent uh, publisher, by the way, uh, a book called Canada in the World, Settler Col- Capitalism and the Colonial Imagination by Tyler Shipley. And uh, Tyler, in his introduction, there's an epigraph. Is that what you call the thing in italics before the chapter starts? Epigraph? Um, okay. I think so. (laughs) Anyway, the epigraph goes like this. When the European settlers arrived, they needed land to live on. The First Nations peoples agreed to move to different areas to make room for the new settlements. (laughs) No. (laughs) And Tyler goes on. In the complete Canadian curriculum guide for third graders, uh, it continues to, the claim goes, the First Nations peoples moved to areas called reserves where they could live undisturbed by the hustle and bustle of the settlers. (laughs) <laughs> and then I, you asked me what the date was on this curriculum, right? Uh, yeah, I thought it would be like 1896 or something. 2017. <sighs> <laughs> so, uh, so that takes us to our part two. Oh, of, um, <laughs> uh, in which of this part, I guess it's part three on Canada, but in this part we're going to, um, things are going to get uh, pretty bad, so. If you, uh, you know, if you're trying to hold on to uh, Canadian benevolence, you may want to uh, find another podcast for uh, for the rest of this one. Um, so, by about we can do another episode later on on textbooks and how they come into uh, practice. Yeah, because yeah. they're not they're not actually written by the ministry. You did mention that in um, in our intro, but yeah, we should definitely talk. Uh, maybe at the when we're wrapping up, we should have several wrap up episodes, including like some stuff about how history is taught and what makes it into textbooks. And right, and then you getting a book in the middle of our episodes also explains why we now have two, three, and four episodes per topic. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, you know, you start the research process, and then you send away for something, and then it comes. And then you're like, oh, no, I have to revise my whole uh, thinking on this whole thing. Well, you've already read a few books that have suggested that we should start over from the beginning. Yeah, well, there's no, I don't know what you call it. There's no backsies in civilization. (laughs) Once once we've gone, once we've passed that date, we got to keep going. All right. Um, So, yeah. By about 1880, the bison are um, pretty much gone. So this was uh, seen up until 1880 in the West um, as an inexhaustible resource. So it's pretty amazing that uh, as Canada advances into these territories that they manage to make that, um, ex- you know, this unbelievable population of bison um, essentially extinct. Um, so the new plan, <laughs> now that they've, they, they were doing fur trade and made the beaver extinct. Now they've done, um, bison, they've commodified the bison, uh, for food and made that extinct. So the, the new plan is agriculture. Um, and, uh, the, you know, there's a whole process that's called the, um, prairie agricultural program. Uh, very, there were various things along these lines to, uh, well, we'll get to them, but the idea is, you know, we're going to settle agriculturalists uh, in the West. There will be white people, there will be native people. They'll have their agricultural lands and 
and so on. But their agriculture in, in the West needs incredible subsidy and government help. And so the strategy of Canadian of, of Canada was to give that help to the white communities and deny that help to native communities. And then they can say, I don't know, I guess the native people aren't so good at agriculture. So that was, um, that was one of the main uh, things that happened. I will unfold that story uh, as we go. Um, again, now, uh, it's Sheldon Krasowski. I was corrected by a listener, a listener who's very knowledgeable on this topic, Paul Burroughs. Um, he wrote me on Facebook and said, you, you, you got to correct, uh, you got to correct um, the spelling on this uh, or, you know, the pronunciation, because I, I was calling him, I think, Kowalski, but the author of no Surrender is, I think, Sheldon Krasowski. Uh, so apologies, Sheldon, if you listen to this. Um, so Krasowski argues that the numbered treaties, you know, one through seven, I guess, in the West, uh, were actually sought by First Nations. And they were based on principles of annual renewal, the use and sharing of land resources, not a surrender. There were some surrenders involved in Upper Canada treaties, uh, Krasowski argues. Um and the First Nations would remain nations. Um, so one of the tricks among the many tricks that the Canadian authorities would do uh, was to write things down in the treaty that were not agreed to. And Krasowski has all kinds of examples of this. Uh, and he goes through the, ra- the sources in a very careful way. Like this is, it's a good, it's good, his- it's good historical work that, he- that he's doing here um, to, um, to show that what was agreed to and what was written down were two different things. Did you want to add something? In there? Yeah, just the the annual renewal from an indigenous perspective makes perfect sense. It's like rent. If yeah. you're a landlord, you don't sign somebody on for a lease that lasts, you know, 50 years. That's right. That's right. So uh, we mentioned the uh, Gradual Civilization Act um, from the 1850s. The 18, 1876 is when the Indian Act uh, comes in. And the Indian Act is uh, pretty bad. It's pretty bad for Canada. It's very bad for Indigenous people. Um, and it is the foundation of what Canada does since. And the source here I'd recommend I mentioned before is 21 Things You May Not Know About the Indian Act by Bob Joseph. Uh, And the Indian Act does all kinds of things, but let me quote the idea uh, behind the Indian Act. Um, And I think this is a quote from John A. MacDonald, but uh, here goes. Our Indian legislation generally rests on the principle that the Aborigines are to be kept in a condition of tutelage and treated as wards or children of the state. The true interests of the Aborigines and of the state alike require that every effort should be made to aid the red man in lifting himself out of his condition of tutelage and dependence. And that is clearly our wisdom and our duty, though through education and every other means to prepare him for a higher civilization by encouraging him to assume the privileges and responsibilities of full citizenship. Um, So you can imagine... uh, the higher civilization that just drove two species to extinction is now going to raise the Indians out of the tutelage that it put them under by destroying the ecological basis for their livelihood. So this is all very encouraging Um, there. They rename people. So under the, so the Indian act contains the seeds of basically all of the horrors of Canada's uh, 
colonialism to come. So uh, the Indian agents rename people, they assign Christian names. So the author of this 21 Things, Bob Joseph, he, he, he encounters people who say, hey, are you related to that other Joseph from that other reserve? And Bob would say, no, but I bet we had the same Indian agent because the Indian agent just would assign, you know, Bob Joseph. Um, there's a permit system. So here's a here's an example of how Canada set uh, Indigenous uh, agriculturalists uh, up to fail. Um, they created a permit system so that Indigenous people uh, cannot sell products from their farms unless they get a permit from their Indian agent. So not a rule that applies to settler um, farmers, but it applies to them. Uh, and so when they say we want to settle uh, these people on uh, farms, um, they're, they don't mean it. And this is why like the whole idea of assimilation is not really what Canada wants. Canada says they want assimilation, but what Canada actually wants is to literally get rid of uh, get rid of First Nations. Um, they illegal. They make the cultural ceremonies and the potlatch specifically illegal. Uh, the potlatch is very offensive to capitalists because it involves giving things away for free. Um, Can't have of, that. Yeah, they think of that as communist, uh, even though. <laughs> yeah. So, um, and it, and they get really upset about it after the Russian Revolution when there is a, you know communism out there. Uh, they 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 do the past laws. So um, I'm going to get more into this, but the past laws basically they're trying to force um, indigenous people onto reservations. Remember, the size of this territory is immense, and it's all indigenous land. And what Canada wants is to confine indigenous people onto tiny reserves, um, and in order to force them to stay on those reserves, they force them to they they have to have a a reason to leave. They have to prove to their Indian agent that they have some good reason. So they have past laws. This is something that South Africa uh, studied and um, adopted for their uh, their kind, gentle uh, apartheid system that they implemented uh, several decades later, five decades later, I guess. Um, there's the residential school. So the Indian Act provides for legislation, I mean, for education. So the idea is they're lifting uh, in Indigenous people out of their uncivilized state, and they do that by residential schooling. Uh, that, of course, is the biggest, probably the biggest nightmare of this whole thing, uh, which will get into as much as we can tolerate a little bit later. Um, and one element of the residential schools is forbidding the use of their indigenous languages at the school um, on pain of, you know, corporal punishment and so on. So, uh, Indian Act. Um, now, on to the numbered treaties. So it's interesting that the numbered treaties are being negotiated, you know, during the same process of the Indian Act being enacted. So, uh, <laughs> I mean, it really does tell you the good faith that Canada is bringing to these treaty negotiations, right? Um, the First Nations are keen to use the treaties to protect their land. Uh, and Canada is meanwhile negotiating, but with, with the Indian Act kind of attitude and the Indian Act legislation in the background. So uh, I mentioned uh, James Daschuk uh, clearing the plains in the previous episode. And here's a quote from him about the numbered treaties. He says, 
From the perspective of the Dominion, treaties were a means to facilitate regional, economic, and political development. To Canada, they were a legal imperative, an obstacle to be overcome before settlement could proceed in earnest. To First Nations, the treaties were a means to secure their well-being in the face of an unsure future. So now, um, uh, part of what's going on in the 1870s is there are Let's call them, uh, I guess, during the John Brown episode and in in around this time, I guess a couple decades before in the 1850s, they were called ruffians. Um, there were men from the Missouri River, white Americans from the Missouri River, and they were smuggling. They, were call, they called it the whoop up whiskey trade. <laughs> I guess they're whipping their horses or something. Um, they, the traders bring smallpox. Uh, another wave of smallpox, which kills 3,500 people, mo- mostly Nitsitapi, Cree, and Métis. Uh, the Nitsitapi don't want the whiskey trade. They fight them. Uh, they believe that the trade was the disease was spread on purpose. So uh, some investigators, like William Butler, come to the same conclusions. Everybody thinks that this is a possibility because Amherst did it in se- six- 1763. Um, there's not a lot of... Um, you know, there's not a lot of confirmation that it was done on purpose since Amherst did it, but everybody has, every time people have a smallpox outbreak, they sort of think um, maybe they did it on purpose ever since Amherst. Um, uh, pardon me for interrupting. Um, f- Fort Whoop Up yeah. was the uh, most notorious of the whiskey forts. Um, 1869 to 74, they say, uh, that was the nickname, but it was eventually adopted as the official name. (laughs) All right. Sorry. (laughs) Okay. Uh, so the American army, so there's this interplay between what's going on in the U.S. with their Indian wars and Canada, right? So a big part of why the Canadians are... I mean, the Canadians, the First Nations in, out here in Western, what is now Canada, are going for these treaties is partly because they're watching the Indian Wars uh, to the south. Yep. And the, the Canada is threatening them with that, with that as well. Um, so there's an American, uh, you know, one of these, one of the things that happens in settler colonialism, I guess, is, you know, the settlers show up and do something to the natives the natives uh you know retaliate somehow and then the army comes so the american army uh, came in to back up the settlers and actually massacred 173 people in 1870 in this maria's river massacre um that's in i think that was on the u.s side of the border but that um you know, freaked the Nitsitapi out. So they stopped fighting in U.S. territory. Um, some of these people are kind of infamous. Um, John H. Evans and Thomas Hardwick are whiskey traders uh, from the Spitzy Cavalry. Uh, they committed various massacres uh, in the U.S. Sweetgrass Hills Massacre, 1872. Cypress Hills Massacre in 1873. Um, and they're they're leading some of these incursions into Western, um, you know, so-called these western territories of what is now canada um the the 
HBC Hudson Bay Company official Richard Hardesty, he told these whiskey merchants that they were breaking the law by coming. And here's a quote. They coolly told him they knew it well, but he had no force to present, prevent it, so they would do just as they liked. Um, the Dominion was not in a position to... Um, the Dominion of Canada was not in a position to do much in the way of vaccination, but there were vaccination campaigns in the 1870 run by Hudson's Bay Company. Um, okay, so treaty, just some examples of treaties. Treaty 1 in Manitoba uh, is negotiated because the Dominion wants to give land to Ontario settlers in 1871. Um, follow, it's followed quickly by hunger and food shortages a measles outbreak at Fort Alexander, um, and then the mounted police arrive at Fort Carlton and build a telegraph line in 1874. The Cree stop construction of the line, and the Dominion tries to um, mollify them by offering gifts. One of the chiefs, Big Bear, he says, quote, we want none of the queen's presence. Let your chiefs come like men and talk to us. Um, in There's the negotiation for Treaty 6 in 1876. Uh, this is two months after the Little Bighorn um, in the U.S., and that's Custer and uh, the stew, I guess. Um, yeah, can I just comment yeah. on this? Uh, mm -hmm. I, I know several people who have said uh, in my presence, this is some time ago, uh, I hope they wouldn't say the same thing now, but decades ago, uh, if you knew a little of this history, you would compare the uh, American Indigenous experience to the Canadian Indigenous experience. That's the term that they would use, mm -hmm. uh, and say, "Well, you know, at least we didn't yeah. slaughter our Indigenous people the way the Americans did." Right. And uh, depending on the company, you could address it or not. Uh, but obviously, uh, the Bayotuk. Yeah, exactly. Were exterminated. Uh, there was a bounty on them. And I'm not sure if this is just legend or truth, but I believe the last Beotuk woman to be killed, that her skull is in a museum in Britain somewhere. Yeah. Uh, the reason we didn't exterminate our Plains Indigenous, the, the Plains Indigenous people, is probably because we couldn't. I mean, negotiation is a, a way to reach your goal by other means. Obviously, they would use force if they could. So they yeah. just didn't have enough soldiers or armed people on the planes to do the exterminating. So they went with other means. Yeah, I mean, and, and remember, too, that the U.S. negotiated treaties and went back on them as well. Uh, so treaties, violence... Uh, going back on the treaties, confining people to reserves, yeah, uh, starving them. The, you've seen some of the heritage minutes, right? I yeah. I think there's yeah. a famous one of the Sioux coming north and being really pleased to meet the uh, Royal Canadian Mounted Police and and think, oh, we're safe. Now we can make a treaty with you know the great queen and, and she'll keep her word. And <laughs> it's yeah. pretty horrifying stuff that's sitting bull probably they're talking about maybe yeah. and sitting bull came and then he was later expelled um yeah. right back sent right back to the u.s i think um 
So yeah, I, I think it, uh, yeah, this, this, it's great that you said that. It's great that you mentioned that because it's important to address and it's important to, I would say to think about it, I would encourage people to think about it more as a kind of a continental system. You know, all these tools are available to both powers, the US and the British uh, at this time, you know, the Dominion. And, uh, and they use them, you know, in, with, <laughs> in the most uh, cynical realpolitik kind of way um, to get what they wanted. Uh, so, yeah, remember that the bison herds collapsed and we're on this track of uh, converting to agriculture. Um, and, but as soon as they, uh, as soon as the bison herds do collapse, famine follows immediately. And this is where, you know, this is where the argument that at least the dominion didn't exterminate, uh, becomes really, uh, what can I say? Becomes really hard to hold up because of the way this famine of the 1880s plays out, um, the Dominion does not provide relief during this famine. Tuberculosis becomes a major killer. And tuberculosis is not like, it's not like a new disease to the continent like uh, smallpox is. TB is happening because of the conditions. Um, and that's true from now until the residential school area where t TB is the big killer in residential schools. Well, that's not because... Um, you know, that's not because of some kind of biological immunity issue. It's because of the conditions of the schools um, and, and in this case on the reserve. So the, the people are malnourished now. Uh, the Dominion does not provide relief. Um, and huh, there's one thing Dastrick says that in the mid 19th century, the people on the plains may have been the tallest and best nourished people in the world. Um, and now they're malnourished and dying in a famine. Um, so the, uh, yeah, um, William, one, the, one of the governors, Lieutenant Governor, uh, uh, William Morris of Kewatin, um, he writes to, uh, Johnny McDonald and says, I want to do a quarantine, uh, to deal with the, these, uh, I, I guess the TV and the prime minister says the prime minister's office under McDonald telegraphs back people themselves must avoid contagion, decline expenditure for that quarantine. Uh, when William Morris does the quarantine anyway, he's recalled uh, back to uh, Canada. So, you know, this is another example of like, <laughs> this is not something that happened by accident. So um, when Treaty 7 is negotiated for Southern Alberta, so Alberta because of tensions just south of the border. Um, there's a, the negotiator, David Laird makes this promise to the Ditsitapi. He says, the queen wishes to offer you the same as was accepted by the Crees. I do not mean exactly the same terms, but equivalent terms that will cost the queen the same amount of money. So they're promised the, they make this promise, ecological promise they can't keep, which is that the bison are going to survive for 10 more years. Um, and, uh, in that spring, the U.S. Army began its campaign against the Nez Perce. Uh, rumors circulated about the possibility of Chief Joseph and his people joining forces with Sitting Bull and his people at Cypress Hill until after 1879, the mounted police were responsible for the day-to-day -day administration of Indian affairs in Treaty 7 Reason. So they're basically like occupying this area. Um, that was a quote from Dastrick. 
another quote from Dastruk. In April 1878, Indian agent M.J. Dickinson reported that over the winter, the Indians were very poorly off, starving, in fact. He estimated the entire Indian and Métis population of the Northwest were about 26,500. And he said to provide food for this number of people would require at least 132,000 pounds of meat, 350 animals daily or 10,000 annually. And, you know, what's interesting here is um, the way they calculate the exact amount of food you need to keep people alive. Um, it's this kind of, yeah, I think of that as a very uh, ominous <laughs> way of way of uh, make, making these kinds of calculations. So um, Johnny McDonald, when he returns to power, he makes himself superintendent of superintendent general of Indian affairs. So he's taking over this portfolio himself. Um, there's another famine in the winter of 1878-9. Uh, there are Indian agents reporting on the starvation. Um, Just a, it's yeah. possible that as chilling as it is that a guy like Dickinson was actually saying, you know, you need to send this much food. Yeah. Yeah. I think you're right. And, and of course they're not going to listen to him. And the guy you mentioned before, Morris being recall, re, being recalled. Now you and I don't agree about this. We've had our discussions about it before, but there's a, a school of um, history, I suppose uh, that was prominent uh, I guess in the 60s and 70s, and then went out of fashion. Uh, it was called the man on the spot theory. Yeah, yeah. So, so the argument here is that there's somebody representing the government who's a long way from the capital. So, for example, a British representative of whatever kind who's not in London but is in uh, Ghana or right. uh, in, in India. Calcutta, yeah. Clive, whatever. Right. Or yeah. in the Canadian case, you've got somebody who's not in Ottawa or, or Montreal, but, yeah. you know, uh, on, on the Red River or further. Um, and you can give them instructions before they leave. But once they're gone, how, how do you get them instructions? Right. And, and how do you guarantee that they're going to actually follow those instructions? So there's a decentralized... Um, thing going on here where these people have a certain leeway now when you find out that they are acting contrary to the policy you would like to have them <laughs> follow yeah you can recall them um and sometimes it works both ways uh sometimes you have the ones who overstep their authority and carry out atrocities that you now have to uh cover up apologize for or whitewash and we've seen cases of that <clears throat> jamaica and you know yeah, and we'll see more. Uh, oh, lots more. Gordon, right, in um, Sudan. and Yeah, yeah I, I would just like to add just a small note here that uh, I don't necessarily agree with Justin. I don't think Johnny McDonald is smart enough <laughs> to have a calculated policy, you know, for, the, for 10 or 20 years in the future. Uh, I'm far, far, far from saying that he is... Uh, uh, pro-Indigenous people, that would be ridiculous to state. But I, I don't know that there's this group of old white guys meeting in a secret room in Ottawa oh, yeah. who are planning oh, yeah. the... 
That's exactly what there is. <laughs> well, yeah. So, uh, all right. So, civilizations. Uh, you know, there's some there's some debate. It's a healthy debate uh, on here on civilizations. We encourage uh, different views. <laughs> um, okay. So the Indian Commissioner Dudney uh, works on this quintessential Canadian uh, concept of means testing. So while the mm. While the famine's going on, uh, here's a quote from Dudney. I, I arranged with the colonel that he should do as has been done heretofore. Food be issued when it was found that the Indians were really starving to those who would work and to the sick and infirm who had no friends and who could not work. Um, and like I said, there's this home farm or prairie agricultural program, uh, which was set up, as I said, to fail. There's a work for rations program that the liberals had introduced, which uh, they the McDonald's suspends. Um, the deputy superintendent of Indian Affairs wrote, writes, I quote, strict instructions have been given to the agents to require labor from able-bodied Indians for supplies given them. The principle was laid down for the sake of the moral effect that it would have on the Indians in showing that they must give something in return for what they receive, and also for the purpose of preventing them from hereafter expecting gratuitous assistance from the government. Uh... Um, just give me a second to cool down and uh, then I'll make the note that there's no attempt to actually provide work. So this is just like, you know, I guess we're going to talk about Victorian, uh, Victorian morality, but it's, um, you know, you go, you, you destroy people's livelihoods, you take everything that you can, and then you say, don't worry, we're going to keep you alive. And then, um, once they're fully dependent on you for their um, survival, then you say, well, you can't expect something for nothing, can you? Um, and so uh, that's, what's, that's what's at work here. Um, here's another quote, I think, from Daschuk. In January 1880, this is about what they're giving uh, the Indians in return for their work. Uh, Farm instructor Scott described the Indian department pork that he distributed at Touchwood Hills as both musty and rusty and totally unfit for use, although we are giving it out to the Indians in the absence of anything better, but we cannot use it ourselves. Um, What they're giving to to, uh, Indigenous people is less than half the ration provided to state prisoners in Siberia, according to one Dr. Kitson at Fort McLeod. Um, Sir Leonard Tilly, the finance minister, says they must work or starve. And of course, they did both work and starve. Um, Hayter Reed, a brigade major and adjutant of the Canadian military, replaces Dudney. And Reed is told to use his discretion with regard to the issue of rations to the hungry while being as economical as possible. Um, so you mentioned the Heritage Minute with possibly Sitting Bull. Um, he's returned to the 18 he's returned to the u.s in 1881 um and here's a really i think indicative quote from daschuk by then officials on both sides of the border could command bands to move to places that best suited their management Mm -hmm. so the dominion moves the cypress hills community to make way for the cpr the cree chief Poundmaker, who's an important character in this whole uh, drama says warns basically next summer or latest next fall the railway will be close to us the whites will fill our country and they will dictate to us as they please remarkably Uh, prophetic yeah yeah pound maker knew what was up uh 
In March 24th, 1882, the Prime Minister announced to Parliament, this is, I'm quoting Dastrick again, that all Indians in the territory of Assiniboia would be removed by force, if necessary, from the land south of the proposed railway. So they basically ethnically cleanse southern Saskatchewan of 5,000 people. Um, and so the Liberals, so this is all done by the Conservatives, right? Uh, and so we, you know, the Liberals are critical of this. Do you want to know why they're critical, Dave? They're critical because they think that um, the Canadian government is spending too much uh, feeding the Native people here. So John A. Macdonald assures them in Parliament, he says, we cannot allow them to die for want of food. Uh, we are doing all we can by refusing food until the Indians are on the verge of starvation to reduce the expense. So um, uh, in terms of, you know, Counterexamples. Uh, the Canadian Dakota, they had ex- had experience, long experience in agriculture, and they hadn't never been dependent on the bison economy. So they didn't have to go for government rations. Um, so Dastrick uses this to show that, um, you know, what the what the real killer was here. So he uh, quoting Dastrick, he says, the Dakota did not succumb to the epidemic in the early 1880s because they were relatively free from the oppressive management of the Department of Indian Affairs and could participate in the commercial economy of the region. In other words, they were free from treaty. Where, where were they? Uh, they were around, the, they were in the same region, no? Okay, I'll look it up. Yeah, I think they're, I think they're out. They're out west somewhere, probably close to the U.S. border, because there's obviously Dakota on both sides of the U.S. border. So by 1883, uh, the first train reaches Calgary, and almost all uh, the indigenous people are on reserves. And here's another quote from Daschuk. The government was unapologetic for its use of starvation to complete the occupation of reserves. Um, there's a company called IG Baker and Co, uh, based in Fort Benton. And they're like the big, you know, corporate government power, uh, you know, the Halliburton or <laughs> I don't know, Amazon of, uh, of Western Canada. So, um, when Indians started to have, when indigenous people started to have success with farming, the dominion reduced their assistance. So they, they were unable to mill their grain. They can't consume what they produce. Quoting Dastrick, once the Indians were settled on reserves and dependent on rations, the government could counter protest by um, withholding food. MacDonald assured the liberals that the government would be rigid, even stingy. Um, Indians would be given, quote, uh, assistance only if they showed a disposition to help themselves. Of course, they're banning gift giving and redistribution within indigenous populations. Um, And... Uh, the, here's a here's another important quote from one of these Indian agent types. So long as the treaty population expected to be fed, okay, quote, so long will they be helpless as a people, a bill of expense to the country and a nuisance to their neighbors. Um, again, uh, Hader Reed, again, does these kinds of calculations. He had calculated to a nicety how much work a yoke of oxen and a plow were capable of performing in a given time, and the Indian fell a good deal short of this. He had figured out how little food it was possible to get along with, and the Indian was always hungry. The Indian was lazy, and therefore he must have short rations. If he felt sick, there was a doctor who could give him pills 
but no food. So this is actually, I think, a whistleblower type of person who is uh, who this quote comes from. Um, there are major famines again from 1883 to 1885. Um, and McDonald, Dudney is telling McDonald what's going on. And McDonald says, don't tell me that. Don't report that officially. I want you to report that things are going fine. So Dudney then reports, the progress of Indians is generally very satisfactory and the department has been able to reduce considerably the rations of flour issued to them on several of the reserves. So Dudney is actually in the pocket of this Baker company uh, and IG Baker and Co. And IG Baker and Co. is now um, during the famine actually killing people with poisoned food. Um, There are 20 people on the Kainai Reserve that are killed by poisoned uh, rations over six weeks in 1883. I.J. Baker is uh, sued for it and settles for $2,500, not cash, but in reduction of their contract. Um, there's a Dr. Girard who blows the whistle on this, and he's basically hounded by the Canadian authorities for the rest of his career. Um, there's a there's a guy named Edwin Allen, an Indian agent at Fort Walsh, who's part of the so-called Calgary Syndicate syndicate of corrupt agents who do all kinds of double billing for rations. Um, when they're caught doing fraud, McDonald says, it cannot be considered a fraud on the Indians because they were living on Dominion charity. And as the old adage says, beggars should not be choosers. Um, he says chronic's stomach ailments in their community as a result of too much food and not enough exercise. Um, Yeah. So the the Cree leaders, they abandoned reserves in 1882, uh, unauthorized. So if you abandon your reserve, of course, there's no rations for you. Um, So the the Indian agents do make an exception here. The holdouts were fed, but at minimum levels. Uh, The agent, the Indian agent explains to Dudney, they were not getting enough flour, but I like to punish them a little. Um, And uh, the Regina leader, the newspaper, writes uh, that the government is bound to feed the Indians. So so as they are fed, the poor creatures are no more likely to give trouble than a kennel of dogs at regular intervals, fed at regular intervals. So uh, one band, uh, Chief Piapot's band or Piapo, he this is the most infamous case. They they uh, do the work of cutting cordwood um, and are given rancid bacon, uh, presumably with trichnosis, 130 of them die. One of their leaders, uh, given the food, is is uh, complains to the Indian agent um, that it's inedible. Dudney replies, the Indians should eat the bacon or die and be damned to them. Um, so they, of course, eat the bacon and die. Um, the Dastruk uh, says here, quote, the, predictably, the prime minister dismissed charges that there was a connection between Dudney, the consumption of spoiled bacon, and the sudden spike in deaths on the Indian head reserves. Um, another one of these doctor whistleblower types, Dr. O.C. Edwards, on 7th of February, reports that the mortality of these Indians has been very great, and the death rate was accelerated if death was not immediately caused by the scant supply of food served out to the Indians. So there's a series of meetings now between officials and uh, indigenous uh, leaders to try to keep people on the reserves. So one of the chiefs says, Long Lodge tells the officials there's no game and no potable water on his reserve and that his people were all dying. And if they continue to remain there, they would die. Um, 
among the grievances Piapo cites is that he could not endure the stench that emanated from the dead bodies of unburied Indians then lying on the ground. So the Mounties, in response, send half their Regina contingent with an artillery piece to intercept Piapo and stop them from leaving the reserve. And they let them return temporarily to Indian Head. Long Lodge leads his people to the U.S. and they, he dies there. Um, Van Kofnit is another um, Indian agent who's firing people for giving out too much food. Um, and so now towards the end of this, 1884, 85, you have chiefs that are just breaking into storehouses and taking food. Um, Chief Sakame does this in February. He's charged for larceny. Um, there's another uh, pound maker. There's a big standoff uh, at Poundmaker Reservation where they, uh, the Mounties, they go in to take food and the Mounties do a standoff. The mission schools um, are running based on giving children one biscuit per day for dinner. That's in line with the treatment at orphanages. If you feed them less, then they have less energy to cause trouble and you know, yeah. resist. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so Robert Jefferson, uh, one of the teachers at a Battleford Reserve, he, he writes at this point time that there's a, con- he sees it as a conspiracy. He says, Craig, who's, I guess, the Indian agent, had a fixed idea that it was not intended that the Indians should become self-supporting. He was only to be kept quiet till the country filled up when his ill will could be ignored. Um, there's also uh, one... Uh, I guess Indian agent, I think James Seti, who proposed fishing on Lake Winnipeg to um, to stave off starvation. Uh, but the commercial fishery on Lake Winnipeg says, no, I don't think so. Um, you're going to take our commercial fishing. Um, and and they blame they already blame uh, indigenous people for, uh, you know, fishing too much. So uh, the Saskatchewan Herald summarizes this whole situation in 1885 as the policy seems to be comprised in these six words feed one day starve the next so now we're at um 1885 dave do you want to uh sure. get back to louis riel yeah and and just to connect with what i was saying earlier about uh well i guess y- your theory that this is all being planned in ottawa if they are planning it then they screwed up because they pushed, obviously, the indigenous people too far. They pushed them into a, an uprising that they had not anticipated. And an uprising is way more expensive to put down than sending food would have been. So if, they, if there is a, a bunch of old white men in a room in Ottawa who are planning this, they're doing a crappy job. That would be my point. Uh, yeah, the conditions were so bad on the prairies that the Métis uh, began to think of, you know, of fighting, of or at least of organizing, and some of them thought of Riel. So since the Red River uh, crisis, Riel uh, had lived in exile for a while. Uh, as I mentioned in our last episode, he was elected to Parliament three times, but never took his seat. Uh, obviously for <laughs> justified fear of what would happen to him if he showed up. He returned to Manitoba. Uh, Ontario was still in their anti-Riel uh, frenzy, which went on for a long time. And Johnny MacDonald was facing an election in 1872, 
So he thought, I want this real issue to go away. And he offered him a bribe of $1,000 to stay in voluntary exile. Uh, Riel seems to have been ill for part of that time. And uh, he must have been suffering from some form of depression or mental illness. He spent some time in an asylum near Quebec City. Uh, significant because of you know what happens later. He moved to Montana where he was a trader and an interpreter. He saw firsthand the damage done by uh, rampant alcoholism among the Métis and the indigenous people there. He got involved in U.S. politics. He actually threatened to blow the whistle on, I forget whether it was a Democrat or a Republican, who was basically uh, vote-rigging and doing election fraud. Imagine that. Um, and, and the issue was settled basically without going to court. Uh, he became a U.S. citizen, which I think is also interesting. But then at this stage, uh, a group representing the Métis came down to speak to him and ask him to come back. And this was probably a great mistake for the Métis. Uh, by this time, Riel's name was notorious in Ontario. Never mind whether it deserves to be. It doesn't, doesn't really matter. His name was notorious. Uh, when he returned and, and set up with, uh, basically in, in Saskatchewan, his first proposal was moderation. This is the old Riel, a reasoned approach. But then he seems to have grown more, um, well, odd is the word that's often used. He began making statements that were, um, well, according to the Catholic Church, heretical. He started referring to himself as the divinely selected leader of the Métis. Uh, I'm on a mission from God sort of thing. And you and I have discussed this, and it's definitely a 19th century thing. And Riel is not the only person around in the mid-1800s who thinks that he's on a mission from God or divinely inspired. It's just unfortunate that it um, obviously set the Catholic Church against him. Uh, Cree leaders met Riel, uh, Big Bear and Poundmaker, but their grievances were pretty different from the Métis. So they didn't originally make common cause. So Riel helped the, uh, the French Métis and the Anglo-Métis draft a petition in his traditional style. So Canada's response to this was, uh, we will take a census and form a commission to investigate grievances. So standard bureaucratic delay. Uh, some Métis were angry at this response. They saw it as a delaying tactic, which it most likely was. And Riel became uh, a leader of this faction, the angry group. And when he did that, he lost the support of the Anglo-Métis, of the English settlers, and he was already well on his way to losing the support of the Catholic Church. Uh, and this didn't really appeal to uh, Big Bear and Poundmaker. Uh, it's, it's just too confrontational. 
So the Northwest Mounted Police garrison at Battleford was reinforced um, by 100 men, but rumors spread among the Métis that 500 soldiers were on the way. And that meant to them that the Canadian government was, you know, set on conflict. So they decided to strike first. They took some hostages, they cut telegraph lines, and they declared a a provisional government with Riel as the political and spiritual leader. Uh, I have no idea why they needed a spiritual leader or, you know, it's just another example of Riel's little oddities creeping in. Uh, Gabriel? Well, I think think there may have been some division of labor between him and Gabriel Dumont, right? Who was was the the military leader. Former Buffalo hunter, and he was put in charge of military affairs. That's true. But you know, Riel can do the politics and Dumont can do the military. I, I don't know where the spiritual enters into it. Well, the mission from God, I suppose. Uh, in March of 1885, there was a skirmish that's called the Battle of Duck Lake. Uh, Dumont and the Métis defeated the police uh, rather soundly. And when they heard the news, many of the Cree were encouraged to rise. Uh, Riel thought that he would have months to organize. He's obviously working on his memories of, you know, the Red River uh, time. But the railway changed things dramatically. Canadian troops were arriving at Duck Lake two weeks after the battle. Uh, Dumont had a plan. A long, drawn-out campaign of guerrilla warfare. We're going to tire them out, wear them out, you know, sting like a butterfly or sting like a bee float like a butterfly we're, we're going to avoid a major battle because we can't win one of those uh he won an encounter at fish creek in april but then riel overruled him and insisted on defending batoche now batoche is the 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 i guess the, the capital in a sense but fighting this way is not traditional for the metis or the indigenous this is riel's contribution it's our spiritual capital so i i don't know why dumont gave in but he did and they defended batoche when the canadian forces arrived and they arrived with artillery they had apparently eight thousand uh dominion soldiers by around this time yeah uh, shipley uh, shipley has a couple of notes um on the batoche do you have do you have stuff yeah so the, he's uh, quoting Shipley now, uh, the assault on Batash was merciless. Bullets were sprayed into civilian homes, killing people as old as 93 years. As reported by observers in the Toronto Mail and even in the House of Commons, Canadian soldiers ransacked and set fire to Métis homes, looting and pillaging the village of the enemy. What they could not steal, uh, like ovens and beds and tables, they smashed. Métis leaders were executed or imprisoned. John A. Macdonald wrote to Edna Dudney to explain the executions of the Indians ought to convince the red man that the white man governs. So, Making an example. Yep. Nice. Um, <coughs> sorry. I've got I've got a few more 1885 quotes from McDonald. <laughs> Believe me, <laughs> when yeah. you're done. Yeah, uh, Riel surrendered himself on May 15th. Uh, Big Bear held out until June, but the uh, the uprising, the rebellion, whatever you choose to call it, uh, in this case, was a failure. 
they were up against overwhelming force that they could not match and obviously a degree of ruthlessness that they couldn't match either. Uh, Riel was put on trial in Regina. He had a jury of six English Protestants, a jury of your peers. Uh, his lawyer... <laughs> nice touch there, yeah. Yeah. His lawyers wanted to claim, uh, to, to adopt a defense of insanity, but Riel himself rejected that. Yeah, I've been reading, you know, I sent you one uh, book that Shipley had cited, um, but there's... Um... I was I was getting into this a lot. I read his trial speech, uh, you know, his two trial speeches, and there's like a lot of stuff about how the lawyers, you know, may not have, you know, it certainly didn't represent him the way he wanted to be represented, and he was hoping to make it more of a political issue. And uh, yeah, yeah. Anyway, yeah. Uh, one one juror said afterwards, "We tried Riel for treason." And he was hanged for the murder of Scott, which obviously suggests that the uh, the whole thing was a foregone conclusion. Well, it was. Um, MacDonald said about the execution, uh, he shall die, though every dog in Quebec bark in his favor. Yeah, the dog imagery is very frequent in these uh, right in these now times. I find. Yeah, now MacDonald. McDonald is the leader of a, a government that depends rather heavily on, on votes in Quebec. So it's a really interesting thing for him to say. Of course, think for a moment, who did he say this to? Um, it sounds, yeah, it sounds like something he said in Ontario to an audience that wanted to hear this, and he gave them what they wanted. Um, I don't particularly care about McDonald's position on Riel's execution. If you're expecting mercy from McDonald, you know. No, no, but I, I think it's indicative, right? Because it's like, I, I just, I just, I think it's important that people understand, like, this guy, who, what this person is, who was on your, what, $5 bill, whatever, $10 bill, yeah. and uh, who's, you know, who's, when people deface the statue of McDonald, and then there, there are people that are still, um, facing various kinds of <laughs> legal troubles for allegedly doing something to a statue here in Ontario, yeah. and uh, I just think you know if people knew, people ha- people should have an idea who this person is and what he yeah. was about. Well, back to Riel, he uh, he apparently regretted not having used the insanity defense. I mean, after his conviction, he didn't get a political trial. It was over really quick, and it was certainly not uh, something that ended up in all the newspapers verbatim. Uh, They just went with the uh, happy news that he had been convicted and sentenced to death. Uh, They made requests for a retrial. So this is significant in the sense that, you know, if you're going to argue that uh, Riel wasn't suffering from some kind of mental illness. Well, he seems to have been ready to admit it, just not before the trial. Uh, he was hanged the 16th of November, 1885, and predictably the reaction in uh, Canada split along English-French lines. So Riel's reputation was... Uh, 
well, there, he had two reputations. He was a hero to French Catholics who died defending French and Catholic rights. He was uh, a traitor and a murderer to English Protestants. So, I mean, I, they're, both, <laughs> they're both wrong, right? How, how yeah. can he be a traitor? Right. Well, 1885 is different, but, you know, he's certainly not a traitor in, in the Red River uh, conflict. <laughs> it, well, I, I, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I don't... If you look at what Canada's doing there, I don't think... I don't think you can be a traitor. Anyway, yeah. Uh, Louis Riel is the most written about person in Canadian history. And his uh, legacy, if you wish, is still up for grabs. There were several bills introduced in in Canadian Parliament to overturn his conviction. Hmm. Uh, There was a bill in 1994, and then between 1994 and 2011, 12 uh, private members' bills were advanced. <laughs> wow. So there's a definite effort to uh, rehabilitate, I guess, is the expression you, you would use, or, or maybe just to you know bring them back into the public eye and, and revisit the debate. So the, 19th, not, yeah. the 19th well. century version of Riel is what you would obviously expect, the triumph of civilization over savagery, uh, he was an insane traitor. Yeah. yeah. Uh, later historians uh, very skillfully left out the Métis and the indigenous people entirely to concentrate on Riel <laughs> like alone. Right. Yeah, like there was nobody with him. It was all him. He's the guy. And noted Canadian historians like Donald Creighton and W.L. Morton saw Riel as a megalomaniac. His demands were unrealistic Psychology, uh, psychologizing, yeah. Well, yeah, you're you're not addressing his positions or his demands because he was crazy. Therefore, anything he said was unrealistic and and, and wrong. Uh, the Catholic Church had originally supported the Métis. They changed their position with uh, Riel in 1885 because of some of his heretical statements. So uh, Riel's reputation in Quebec changed in the, I guess in the 1960s and 70s, when the Catholic Church's influence in Quebec began to decline and Riel became a hero once again. So the, the revision basically ended up with I guess some kind of compromise version of the story where Métis grievances were justified and the government was unresponsive. And this is why I would say you should not put up statues to Louis Riel. Don't make it all about Louis Riel. Put up the Métis Bill of Rights instead. If you must put up a statue, put Dumont up there with him so that people go, who's that guy? Yeah. Right? So, well, there's, a, yeah, sorry. There's you're still some controversial aspects today. So, the, the two issues that are still floating around are uh, the question of Riel's sanity, which personally, I don't think it matters. Yeah, me neither. You know, read what he wrote and, and said and did. I mean, I yeah, mean, like, are we going to question, like, 
<laughs> if you look at the statements by, you know, as Cecil Rhodes or, you know, General Gordon or any any of these, yes. it's like it's full of maniacs, right? I mean, you could you could even say that, yeah, again, like people like Ulysses Grant or Sherman or, or Lincoln, like all of these Garibaldi, like you've heard stuff that Garibaldi said. Garibaldi yeah. wrote to Lincoln and said, I'm willing to take over your army. <laughs> OK, but that's just the megalomania part. When you get to the religious craziness. You know. Right. In terms of the religious yeah. uh, mission yeah. from God, yeah. The other thing, though, that remains controversial is the execution of, of Scott, and I don't think that's ever going to go away. It It's kind of uh, the fly in your drink. Right. Um, there were other, so, you know, as Shipley notes, there were other things going on and specifically there were other resistances by other nations. So it wasn't just the Métis. So a couple of notes about that. And, uh, and I, I have a few minor conclusions about what I've come to think. I don't think they disagree with yours, but it's a few notes that I'd like to add. But, um, so there's a guy, there's an Indian agent named Thomas Quinn. He's a real gem. Uh, during the famine, he calls all the local indigenous people to the ration house. And he says, ha ha, there's no food. It's an April Fool's joke. Oh, my God. Yeah. Uh, there are uh, sexual abuses against women in the community by Indian agents. It's fairly routine. There's one named John Delaney, who's infamous, uh, quote, roundly hated for his relationships with very young women of the reserve and for his casual humiliations of hungry people. Um, the famine is used to create some sort of market for sexual slavery. They're basically trading rations for sexual favors from indigenous women uh, and girls. Uh, a government member, Hector Langevin, refused to accept that this constituted trafficking in young girls by asserting that to Indians, quote, marriage is simply a bargain and sale that the parents of a young woman are always on the alert to find a buyer for her. Uh, the farm instructor John Norris, Norris at the Blackfoot Reserve was fired for trading food for sex in 1882. Uh, and so at Frog Lake, uh, there was a, there was an event, let's call it, where the Cree uh, kill 10 of these uh, types of guys, all each of which there are this kind of grievance against. So um, there's a brief battle and the Cree surrendered. Uh, after killing these guys uh, and the trials, um, this is, I guess, quoting Dastrick again, the trials at Battleford were very informal. The accused were provided with little, if any, legal counsel. The executions there, the largest number in Canadian history, were designed to ensure swift retribution of those who had taken European lives and to intimidate the reserve population. Uh, MacDonald said, yeah, here's that. That's the quote. The Battleford executions is when he said these executions ought to convince the red man that the white man governs. Um, they actually brought students of the residential school to witness the hangings. They kept the hanged uh, uh, indigenous people up for 15 minutes to show, you know, before they cut them down, buried the sands, uh, buried the caskets in the sand. So here's a couple more gems. Um, from McDonald uh, that uh, Bob Joseph put in in the uh, 21 Things You May Not Know. So one is, when the school is on the reserve, the child lives with its parents who are savages, and though he may learn to read and write, his habits and trading of mode of thought are Indian. He is simply a savage who can read and write. Indian children should be withdrawn as much as possible from the parental influence, and the only way to do that would be to put them in central training industrial schools where they will acquire the habits and modes of thought of white men. 
1885 again, we must vindicate the position of the white man. We must teach the Indians what law is. 1885, um, yeah, here's another good one. I have not hesitated to tell this house again and again that we could not always hope to maintain peace with the Indians, that the savage was still a savage, and until he ceased to be a savage, we were always in danger of a collision, in danger of war, in danger of an outbreak. Um, uh, and then on the Electoral Franchise Act, just to throw <laughs> the uh, Asi- anti-Asian racism into the mix, uh, remember that uh, in the same year, um, debating the Electoral Franchise Act, McDonald said, the Aryan races will not wholesomely amalgamate with the Africans or the Asiatics. The cross of those races, like the cross of the dog and the fox, is not successful. Um, so, uh, Actually, in that case, I think the Aryans are the dogs. <laughs> I think you're probably right. <laughs> yeah, they are. So after... Um, the rebellion or the resistance after 1885, there are 81 who are charged 44 that are imprisoned. That's a better title. The Métis rebellion. That would be better than the real rebellion. Right. But I still think uh, in the elements of indigenous style, they argue that 1885, even then, um, you know, if you're challenging Canada's right to do it. Oh, I don't mean the rebellion part. I just mean calling it the Métis uprising rather than the real something. Shipley, I think, calls it the War of 1885. So after this, the uh, 81 are charged, 44 are imprisoned, and this is where uh, Indian Affairs basically consolidates its control over the over the population. So Edgar Dutney writes uh, a report uh, on the Dominion, D- Dominion's initiatives in 1886 as a policy of reward and punishment. So under this plan, bands that are deemed loyal are provided with livestock, Uh, and other forms of assistance. Cattle are sent to reserves, uh, but rebel bands are punished. Their annuities are withheld. Their horses and firearms are confiscated. Um, So uh, the past system is now enforced throughout the regions. Reserves are basically now prisons. Um, Big Bear's band is broken up. The subdivision of reserves, so quoting Dastruck, reserve lands would be subdivided and worked by individuals rather than collectively. Indian Affairs permits were acquired for all transactions between reserves and the outside world. Uh, Produce grown on reserves could not be sold legally without the permission of an Indian agent. Uh, Dominion cut assistance to First Nations generally. Subsistence or peasant farming in reserve communities diminished economic competition with newcomers so they continue to use starvation and disease they subsidize white farmers settlers take the land um in the u.s there's the wounded knee massacre in 1890 um and during that 1890 um that's also a pretty you know a significant military uh, operation for the united states um and canada is very concerned that indigenous people are going to uh do something so they kind of put a state of emergency in the Northwest. They make the past system extra strict. And this is where they really enforce the banning of religious ceremonies. The reason they're doing this uh, is because they, they th- fear that the religious ceremonies are being used to organize uh, potentially resistance um, in this period of kind of upsurge of indigenous resistance in 1890. So in 1927, um, so remember, lots of uh, Indigenous people actually go and fight on Canada's behalf in World War I. I imagine we're going to have a 
long series on World War One, uh, but. Uh, there's this phenomenon where indigenous people and black people from Canada and the U S uh, go and fight in world war one and come back and um, have higher expectations for what they expect from uh, Canada or the U S. So uh, they start politically organizing um, quoting Bob Joseph uh, being stationed together overseas for the first was the first time indigenous people from different communities across Canada had an opportunity to discuss their living conditions on reserves. They talked about the expropriation of reserve land, the restrictions and hardships they experienced due to government policies, their treatment at the hands of government representatives. One of these listening and sharing was Lieutenant Frederick Loft, a Mohawk from Six Nations. While stationed abroad, Loft managed to arrange a meeting with the Privy Council and the King of England to describe the living conditions of Indian people in Canada. When he returned to Canada, Loft wrote to chiefs inviting them to meetings and asking them to share the information with as many others as possible. He explained his vision of the League of Indians of Canada, that Indians needed to be unified to pursue common goals of recognized land rights, living conditions, and better education, advocated for annual fees to cover expenses, and having the surplus go to a fund. He expressed his intent with, to work with the federal government. The first three annual meetings were held in Ontario in 1919, Manitoba 1920, Saskatchewan 1921. Further meetings were held in that region, and the uh, Indian agent Duncan Campbell Scott tried to get uh, Loft stripped of his Indian status <laughs> as a result. <laughs> um, so in 1927, uh, as a response to Loft and others, um, Canada disallows political organization by indigenous people and also makes it illegal to raise funds to hire legal counsel. <laughs> um, wow. to, to add to that in 1927, uh, there's a law passed uh, that pool hall owners, billards, billiards cannot let indigenous people in. So the law states any owner or person in charge of a pool room who allows an Indian to enter a pool room in violation of such notice and any Indian who enters a pool room where his admission had been so forbidden shall be liable on summary conviction to a penalty not exceeding $25 and costs to or to imprisonment for a term not exceeding 30 days. The yeah. justification for this is, of course, that Indian people should be working. Uh, that's not. that's also a morals issue. Yeah. I've Victorian. seen the, uh, the contract of a, a teacher in Ontario in 1900 and I forget what yeah. and they could be fired for going to a pool room it's an immoral yeah. place <laughs> so um uh now 1920s to I guess 1990s or late 80s uh is the residential schools area so I'm using a controversial source Kevin Annette Canadian Holocaust you can tell it's going to be controversial from the name uh, but there's also, uh, I, I looked specifically in the Tr Truth and Reconciliation Commission report, the 2015 report, which is 4,000 pages long, and I highly recommend it. Um, it is, you know, it's it's a it's an amazing, you know, nat document for Canada. Um, and I think it has, there's a lot in there that, uh, you know, if we would follow, uh, we could make this uh, country a much better place. You want to take uh, a you want to take a guess how many Canadian lawmakers have read it? I don't two, hmm. one, zero. <laughs> I don't know. Do you know or? Oh, you just I guess? have no idea. But yeah, my <laughs> prediction would be somewhere in that range. Yeah. Um, so. Uh, okay. So the political goal 
Um, so Kevin, I'm quoting Annette, and I think this is, this is fair. He says, the aim of the residential schools was to destroy the Indian nations in stages and thereby secure final um, European control over their lands and resources. So here are some of the most absolutely harrowing things that, um, unfortunately, I think we do have to talk about because, you know, you have people like Aaron O'Toole, the conservative uh, leader, saying that the residential schools were well-intentioned and they were just trying to give Indians education and there were some excesses and so on. And I think... Uh, Regrettable. Excesses. I think if you hear, yeah, I think if you hear what what's what went on here, uh, whether you read Annette or the TRC or whatever, um, I don't think you that holds up. Um, so there are death rates of 40 to 50% at some schools um, over the life of these residential schools. One estimate is that 50,000 children uh, were killed. There was essentially a protected pedophile ring with a vast web of criminality and sexual abuse. Um, the, Of course, the installed banned councils. There's sterilization. In Alberta, there's the Sexual Sterilization Act, um, under which 2,800 Indigenous women were sterilized. Uh, that starts in 1928, goes on, I think, till 1972. Uh, there were some residential schools, essentially all of the Indigenous children sent to the provincial training school in Red Deer are sterilized as a matter of policy. Um, one social worker, Pat Taylor, says there were no exceptions. Um, George, Dr. George Darby, one of these sterilizer type doctors, was asked by an older uh, Indigenous uh, man for a vasectomy. He said, you know, he, he and him and his wife were done having kids. Uh, and Dr. George Darby says, you're a good Anglican, Ed. Have a lot of, have a lot of children. I only sterilize the pagans. Um, whistleblowers about these various things are uh, fired and hounded out. Dr. Peter Bryce from the Ontario Health Commission writes to Duncan Campbell Scott in 1909. He says, I believe the conditions are being deliberately created in our Indian residential schools to spread infectious diseases. The mortality rate among students often exceeds 50%. This is a national crime. Uh, Peter Bryce uh, is hounded out of his job and so on. His, his report is not published. So he publishes it as a book, The Story of Na a National Crime Being a Record of the Health Conditions of the Indians of Canada from 1904 to 1921. They established schools on key native lands. So they established the school at a salmon fishery or at the mouth of a river, which is uh, reminds me of 1857, pre-1857 India, where the coincidentally, you know, they need to build a road right where there's a Muslim mosque or a Hindu temple in India. Um, there are burials of bodies. There's disappearances of bodies, cover-ups, homicides, unmarked graves, children that are thrown out of windows, um, you know, killed with lethal injections, um, poisoned food, um, you know, there, um, there's an electric chair set up in one of these residential schools. Um, that's in the TRC report. Uh, the, the Annette's report has testimonies of people who were electrocuted in the electric chairs. Um, uh, Duncan Campbell. So here's some key quotes from Duncan Campbell Scott about this, who's the Indian, the deputy superintendent general of Indian affairs. In 1910, Duncan Campbell Scott says in a letter to Indian agent general Mackay, 
It is readily acknowledged that Indian children lose their natural resistance to illness by habitating so closely in these schools and that they die at a much higher rate than in their villages. But this alone does not justify a change in the policy of this department, which is geared towards the final solution of our Indian problem. We'll hear that phrase again, probably in this uh, show. Um, Residential school is made mandatory for all children in BC, which is the least Christianized or most pagan part of Canada in 1920. Um, And Duncan Campbell Scott, when he's uh, explaining this, he says, I want to get rid of the Indian problem. Our objective is to continue until there is not an Indian that has not been absorbed into the body politic and there is no Indian question and no Indian department. Uh, In 1931, he says... The government will in time reach the end of its responsibility as the Indians progress into civilization and finally disappear as a separate and distinct people, not by race extinction, but by gradual assimilation with their fellow citizens. Um, So again, you know, I've said this before, I don't believe that they want assimilation. I actually think this is saying much more in the first half than in the second half. Um, Reverend Caldwell writes to the Indian agent about his school in 1938. At our school, we strive to turn them into mature Christians who will learn how to behave in the world and surrender their barbaric way of life and their treaty rights, which keep them trapped on their land in a primitive existence. Only then will our Indian problem in our country be solved. Um, There's another whistleblower in 1948 who says, Neil Walker, the superintendent of Indian Affairs, he says, if I were appointed by the Dominion government with the express purpose of spreading tuberculosis, there is nothing finer in existence than the average Indian residential school. Wow. Um, Yeah. I'm including here uh, a letter which is reproduced in Bob Joseph's 21 um, Things You May Not Know About the Indian Act. It's a letter from... Principal O'Grady to Parents in Kamloops in 1948. Um, And O'Grady writes, Dear parents, it will be your privilege this year to have your children spend Christmas at home with you. The holidays will extend from December 18th to January 3rd. This is a privilege which is being granted if you observe the following regulations of the Indian Department. Um, So then there's various rules about transportation to the home to be paid by the parents the children will not be allowed to go home alone on the train or the bus. The parents must bring children back to the school. If the children are not returned to school on time, they will not be allowed to go home for Christmas next year. I ask you to observe the above regulations in order that this privilege of going home for Christmas may be continued from year to year. I love that. That's the, for me, that's like the most Canadian ever. That's the, that kind of bureaucratic threat phrased as like a positive thing. It will be a joy for you to have your children with you for Christmas. It will also be a joy for your children, and it will bring added cheer and happiness to your home. Um, There are reports um, in Kevin and Nat that there were some of the Nazis from Operation Paperclip who set up in Canada after um, after World War II. Uh, There's um, yeah, there's some hair. I'm not I'm not going to read all the worst testimony, but there's someone named Bob Armstrong who apparently operated off of Lincoln Park Air Force Base in Calgary. According to survivors, they were, um, you know, there were various atrocities committed against them by this Armstrong who they were transported to and from this base. Um, 
So in the 60s, you've probably all heard of the 60s scoop. Um, these scoops actually where they took children off to residential school, but the scoops um, continued into the 80s. Uh, one testimony says, our village had no children in it at all after one of the Mounties clean sweeps, um, said Hazel Joseph. They were even taking the two and three-year-olds and clubbing down any of our men who resisted the kidnapping. Um, and then just to give you one testimony about like the nature of the murders and cover-ups um when there is a murder on a residential school the rcmp actually tell says it isn't their mandate to investigate these homicides um so here's one from kevin and nat after richard thomas was found dead in the school gym the rcmp told us not to talk about what we saw they didn't even take our testimonies and they threatened us another testimony i found a little body in the weeds of the school in the fall of 1965 we were playing soccer and i found her she was maybe eight or nine and looked like she had been there a while i told andrews the principal and he got really mad and told me never to tell anyone no cops ever interviewed me about it but i got threatened by andrews that i'd be in deep shit if i ever said anything a mountie came to the school a few months later and told me the same thing i thought that was pretty strange a cop telling me not to mention a dead body and apparently according to annette's book uh, these threats continued into the 1990s against survivors so it's, uh, you know, the big picture is, you know, take the land, remove the means of subsistence, create dependence, and then, you know, really do whatever you want, which is, you know, go for these kinds of famines, you know, resident heart, you know, hurting people onto reserves and then. And then you get into almost, yeah, what you, they call it assimilation. I actually call it extermination, um, you know, programs. So, and the 19th century is a time where they're explicitly talking about race, you know, superior races, demographic engineering. We need to lower their population and increase ours. And that's, um, that's what I have to say about Canadian colonialism, Dave. <laughs> Yeah, and it's better it's better known outside of Canada than in. Yeah, you were saying people in France. Uh... Yeah, my wife and I spent uh, five months in France, uh, nineteen ninety five. So that's when I realized when you said this. That's when there was a big standoff, right? At um, in Mohawk. Well, Mohawk the, the second referendum was coming up. So yeah. yeah, the indigenous in Quebec were particularly alarmed that it might come. Uh, what was it called? Oka? Oka yeah. crisis. Yeah. So uh, this was worldwide news, and uh, our French hosts. Uh, I mean, they were very, uh, very nice to us, very kind to us. Um, I told you, happy to hear our accents, and and particularly well informed. They had a lot of questions about the referendum. But they also had questions about the treatment of our indigenous people. Now they said our indigenous people, <laughs> yeah, um, which uh, were pretty difficult to address. Yeah, but they were well, well, I would say better informed than most Canadians. Right. Yeah. I mean, that's the thing, right? Like the the there is a mandate in the Truth and Reconciliation the TRC report that we're Canadians are supposed to be educated um, about this. Uh, 
but you know if the 2017 curriculum <laughs> is what it is uh you know but i will say my M- cyrus who's six uh has heard uh, uh you know some somewhat age appropriate like uh stuff about residential schools so he's been you know he was told that there were these schools where they took people away and wouldn't let them speak their language and stuff and he's asked questions about it and you know um yeah, they have a orange shirt day. So there, I guess there are some, but yeah, for the most part, it's. I don't think the educational mandate in the TRC report has been taken as seriously as it as it needs to be. We will have to talk about education in a later episode. Well, yeah, there's a good. Um, there's a book about. There's a book about history education in the U.S. I don't think there's a there's an equivalent for Canada. Oh no. But there's uh, there's one called "Lies My Teacher Told Me." Yep. Yeah. <laughs> you know, you knew I was going there. Yep. <laughs> By James Lowen, uh, and he goes over ten textbooks, and his thesis is actually that um, students hate history partly because it's taught in this sanitized, full of lies kind of way. Yeah. Well, we can talk about the the Canadian version later on, or at least the Ontario version that I'm familiar with. <laughs> but uh we're going well we're still studying the british aren't we we're not getting off the british for a little while uh, well the the course that you originally took with me was originally called the west and the wider world and right. or, or modern western civilization so we're, we're looking at at both you know yeah. western history and their impact so we're going to china yeah, and uh, the the Chinese, um, what we're going to cover is actually what apparently in China is known as the Century of Humiliation, That's which right. is like from 1839 till 1949, when 1949, Mao Zedong, who I wrote my grade 13 paper on, Dave, you remember? Did I fail you for that? No, no, you, I got a pretty good mark. Uh, and he said, China has stood up, so... That's 110. I mean, you know, when I compare it to India, India had, what, like three centuries of humiliation by that, Yeah, if you want to go that way. But yeah, off, uh, episode 27 will be China. I suspect op- episode 28 will be China as well. <laughs> well, 27A, B, C, D. Okay, see you all then. 